Introduction Part 1 Commentary on the Gospel of John Book 10 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentary on the Gospel of John Book 10 by Cyril of Alexandria Translated by Rev. Thomas Randall Introduction 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself unto him. Our Saviour here says that the revelation of the mystery in us will then be clearest when we see ourselves living in conformity with his likeness. For as I live, he says, ye shall live also the mind of each being fulfilled, as it were, not with what he has heard and believed merely, but rather with what he actually enjoys, when he has reached the completion of the promise. For experience is more powerful than language and ability to convince and satisfy. That we may not think that all without distinction are endowed with the power to partake of so holy a blessing, even though they be not good men, and illuminated by the fear of God, he has added at once to his speech the qualification, They that love me, clearly showing thereby that no others will be allowed to choose so incomparable a grace, but those who have chosen to live most righteously, for they would be those that love him. For even if it be the fact that Christ raises the bodies of all men, for there will be a resurrection of the evil and the good alike, yet not to all without distinction will a new life of glory and felicity be given. For it is clear that some only rise again to punishment, and will have a life more grievous than any death, while others, spending ages of blessedness, will actually live the desirable and holy life in Christ. For that they who are doomed to receive the sentence of punishment from Christ on the occasion of the judgment, will abide without a taste of the blessed life, although they shared with the saints the lot of the resurrection, he makes plain by these words, He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life, but he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall abide on him. For know that although while all the evil and the good alike await the resurrection, he says that those who are fast bound by the charge of disobedience cannot even attain to a glimpse of the life, as he declares that it is not the mere act of resurrection that is life, but that that life rather consists in rest and glory and felicity, spiritual of course, and of no other kind. A spiritual kind of felicity is meant, the perfect knowledge of God and the complete revelation of the mysteries of Christ, not as in a glass and in riddles, even as now showing the characters of the object of our quest dimly, but shining out to us, and glistening in perfect purity, and making our knowledge quite complete. For that which is in part shall be done away, as Paul says. Our Lord Jesus Christ, then, when he teaches us that to those who choose to love him, and to those who do his commandments is the promise of his revelation given, and to them it is more appropriate and pertinent, and not to those who are otherwise minded, and who do the contrary. 
has conveyed this useful lesson in the words, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And a man has his commands when he has received the faith, and, laying it to heart, has let into his inmost soul the unpolluted and unmistakable teaching of the gospel commandments and he fulfills them by carrying them out into actuality, and by making haste to distinguish himself by the light of his actions. Such a man then is perfect and wholly wedded to righteousness, a shining light by his faith and conduct, who has witness borne him of his holiness after the pattern of Christ. For at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established according to the scripture. A man of this sort again, God the Father will surely love, and no less also the Son will love him. For as he is of the same substance, so also has he the same will as his Father. For as the substance is one, the will also is one, and there is one purpose over all, and there is no discord severing their wills in twain. For to those who are thought worthy of the divine love, he promises that he will give a glorious reward, and that he will crown them with exceeding great blessings. For I will manifest myself unto him, he says. For to the pure in heart the mystery of the Godhead will be clearly revealed, and Christ gives them light, illuminating the path of every duty by his Spirit and unveiling himself and making himself visible, as it were, by the ineffable torchlight of the soul. And those who have made their choice once for all are blessed and worthy of all admiration. And methinks the prophet David was a man after this sort when he says, I will hear what the Lord God will say in me. And so is also the divine apostle when he exhorts us, saying, if ye seek a proof of Christ that speaketh in me. For he speaks of things concerning himself in his saints by his Spirit, yea, reveals other mysteries besides. Therefore it is true that knowing these things well, the saints sometimes say, Unto us God revealed them through the Spirit. Sometimes, but we have the mind of Christ, meaning by his mind his Spirit. 22. Judas, not Iscariot, saith unto him, Lord, what is come to pass that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? It is out of love that the disciple proceeds to make this inquiry, but he clearly does not quite understand our Saviour's language. For our Lord Jesus Christ promised to his saints a kind of special knowledge, and not like that vouchsafed to others. For the characters of divine mysteries are more defined and shine out far more clearly among the men of God, while those who have not yet attained to such purity of heart as to be able definitely to choose the knowledge of those things which pass understanding by the gift of the Spirit, display their knowledge in bare logical processes and it is limited to their chance acquaintance with the doctrine that Christ is God, and truly the Son of the living God. Although then there lies this vast difference between them, widely dissevering the knowledge of the vulgar from that which is seen in the saints, the disciple, making no distinction,
proceeds to inquire why he does not promise to reveal himself to all in the world, but only to the saints. And by the exclamation, how comes it to pass, he means to hint at some such meaning as this. Is the aim of thy coming amongst us, Lord, to give to some a complete knowledge of thyself, which to others is wholly denied? For we heard in the prophets that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And thou thyself didst cry out, saying, Rejoice and be glad, daughter of Zion, for, lo, I come and shall dwell in thy midst, saith the Lord, and all nations shall flee to the Lord on that day, and shall be his people. And when we had continual converse with thee, we heard with our own ears thy voice when thou didst say unto us, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. And thou saidest also to the Jews themselves, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall become one flock, one shepherd. Now then, when the expectation is raised that thy grace will be poured upon all men, and that all will be gathered in to the knowledge of God, and when thou thyself hast made us this clear promise, and the voice of the holy prophets bear this testimony, what is come to pass? cries the apostle. Whither has the purpose of the promise then shifted and diverted? Why dost thou manifest thyself not to all that are in the world, but only to us? This, then, and no other, I think, is the meaning of the disciples' words. It is well to show what it was that in fact led him astray from truly apprehending our Saviour's words. For when our Lord Jesus Christ used the words, A little while, and the world beholdeth me no more, but ye behold me, it is very clear that by the world he did not at all mean those who were in this life or living upon the earth, for all men are in this world, evil and good alike. But by the world he rather meant those who are persuaded to mind earthly things, who have yoked their understanding to the vanity of the world. The disciple then, not quite understanding this, thought that he said that of all the rest of mankind who dwell in this earthly sphere he would escape the eye, I mean the inner and secret vision of the soul, and would be wholly unseen, and known by no living man but his disciples only, and this was the cause of the disciples' misapprehension. For if he had understood at first, he would never have proceeded to ask, what is come to pass that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? For he had this meaning I have spoken of, suggested to him through his taking the signification of the word in its common and generally received sense. For we are accustomed to mean by the world, using it in its well-worn and obvious sense, all the inhabitants of the world, just as when one speaks of the city, one means all the dwellers in it. Still, the disciple, even when he says these words, deserves our admiration. For see how he longs that the glory of the Saviour should shine forth through all the world like the sun, although if he had only been taking thought for his own personal welfare, he might, 
as he had the promise of knowledge, have enjoyed blessings peculiar to himself. But it was not enough to gratify his soul that the boon should be granted as it were to him individually, but because he was at once a lover of God and of his fellow men, he longs for the glory of the Saviour to have a wider field, and that grace should be extended to all his brethren. For what joy can equal the being called to the complete knowledge of God? 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. When he saw that the disciple did not quite understand, he goes back again to what he said at first, and teaches clearly that he will not manifest himself to his own, according to the conception he had formed in his mind, but that the manner of his manifestation will be special to his disciples, and not that common to the rest of mankind. For the vulgar, and those, for instance, who have just escaped from the deceitfulness of idols, and have been called to the knowledge of the living God, rest their faith on bare and unquestioned axioms, merely having learnt to know that there is no idol in the world, and that the living God is one only. While they who have their minds illumined by every virtue, and are already in a state to fitly apprehend divine and hidden mysteries, will receive the torch of the Spirit, and will behold with the eyes of the soul the Lord himself, who has taken up his abode in them. The knowledge, therefore, that the saints possess is not common to the rest, but is in a manner special and distinct and widely diverse. Christ then benefits us by every kind of word and way. For, first of all, any one that loves him is very broadly distinguished from the rest, showing as it seems to me, and as I justly apprehend, that it has not been given to all men to receive the power of his grace but only to those in whom the glory of intimate connection with him may be seen in dwelling through their keeping his commandments. Then in what way he will declare himself, and how he will take up his abode in them, he goes on to declare. For my father will love them, he says. For any man who has honored by his obedience to the son, the father, from whom he springs, will reap his love as the fruit of his conduct. Then he clearly shows what will be the issue thereof, and what profit such a man will gain when he says, I and the Father will come unto him and make our abode with him. For when our Saviour Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, surely there too will be also his Father. For the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of the Father himself also and the inspired Paul at one time speaks of this Spirit as belonging to the Father, and at another as belonging to the Son, not by way of logical contradiction, but rather saying what is true of either, for it is so in fact. He says then to some, He that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall quicken also your mortal bodies through his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Then again, and because ye are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
do you see that the same spirit is of the father and the son when then the only begotten dwells in your hearts the father is not far from you for the son hath in himself the father being of one substance with him and is himself by nature in the father this then we may give as the definition and incontrovertible doctrine of the faith and i should be glad to question thereupon those who have chosen heretical opinions from excess of ignorance and to arm their tongues with conceits about the spirit for what have they to answer when we say to them if the spirit is created and alien to the substance of god as you say how can god abide in us through him and how can he that receiveth the spirit partake of god for if it is within the bounds of possibility by the agency of any created being whatever for us to partake of the ineffable divine nature what can be found to hinder god the father thrusting aside the spirit and by means of any other created being that he chooses to select dwelling in us and sanctifying us but this is impossible for no one can partake of the living god by any other means than by the spirit the spirit therefore is god and of god and is not numbered among creatures as some think this consideration also must be taken into account that which partakes of anything as being superior in nature and distinct from what it is itself must of necessity be different in nature from that which is partaken of if then the spirit is created or made what remains for the sum of creation to partake of surely not itself for in that case both that which partakes and that which is partaken of would alike owe their origin to a creator but as it is we being by nature both created and begotten partake of the spirit as being different in natures from ourselves the spirit therefore is not created and if this is true and it is true the spirit is god and of god as we have said for nothing that exists can escape being included in the category of created things except the living god alone from whom the holy spirit ineffably proceeding dwelleth in us as he from whom he springs for he is an attribute of his substance and as it were equality of his holiness so much for my controversy with these heretics but as against the anomoeans and those who have resolved on war with the sun who are diseased with a like and kindred madness to these which we have just spoken of i will refute them as briefly as possible if a man love me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him what then my good sirs have you to say if any one chooses to inquire and desires to know of you whether we shall have two gods in dwelling in us the father and the son or whether you conceive of one god as really existing in us for if the son is wholly distinct in nature and is conceived of as having a separate nature how can we avoid believing that there is a duality of gods in us when we keep his commandment and if we are temples of one that is and not of two gods when the father and the son take up their abode in us 
how can you prove that the two coalesce into unity in us as according to your crazy notion identity of nature is out of the question for either you must say that christ has told us falsehoods and that the father only dwells in us by the spirit or he himself dwells in us and the father is absent but this is absurd and there is one god in us when we receive both the only begotten then will appear to be not different in substance from his father but of him and in him as the light includes the effulgence which proceeds from it such and no other is the true meaning of the mystery and certainly the inspired paul did not call us temples of two gods but clearly of one and the same know ye not he says that ye are a temple of god and that the spirit of god dwelleth in you you see that making the father and the son coalesce in identity of substance he says that we have been made temples not of gods but of one god why then do you bring your rash arguments into conflict with the power of the truth and sow the seed of your poisonous impiety in those who are wont heedlessly to handle the holy and inspired writings twenty four he that loveth me not keepeth not my words when he has premised and rightly defined who those that love him are and of what blessings they will partake he at once proceeds to treat of others who have not yet chosen to love him for they will not keep my words he says for this is the meaning of the saying he will not keep my word spoken as if of and concerning one man even though it has a broad and generic signification and this that he says has a very apt connection with what precedes for if the keeping of his commandments or his word is a clear proof of love towards him surely the converse of this will be true for treating his bidding as of no account and thrusting his commandment aside will be a sign that we refuse to love him as these are the acts of men inured to evil-doing but just as he promised that together with god the father he would himself abide with those who keep his laws for the same reason i think he will pass away from and wholly abandon those who do the reverse for thus the truth of solomon's saying will be seen into the soul of him that maketh iniquity wisdom will not enter nor dwell in the body given over to sin for in common life you can observe that a similar result follows for does not a man gain repute by conversing with those who are like-minded and who choose the same path of life rather than with others and every creature loves his like according to the saying and man will seek union with his like and if it seems most desirable even among ourselves to live with those of similar habits to ourselves how can we escape the reflection that this is still more the case with god for as he is good by nature and the beginning and source of all virtue he takes up his abode not in the lovers of wickedness but in the workers of virtue and disdains the impure and with good reason as then we ourselves are naturally eager to rid our houses of filth and stench if any such there be disdaining to live in them 
will not the pure and all-holy God still more disdain the polluted soul, and abominate a heart sunk in the slough of sin? Of this there can be no question. For that he that doth not keep his commandment will be found among these, and not elsewhere, being as he is impure and of filthy lust, our speculation will perforce teach you. For in not keeping the divine commands, the origin of sin is found. For just as the deprivation of light introduces its opposite, I mean darkness, just so refusing to do virtuous acts causes wickedness to spring up. For inasmuch as the subject matter that underlies them is one and the same, things diverse from each other in quality may admit of comparison. I am far from saying they are identical, according to the law of contraries. And so vice and virtue are separate and widely opposed to each other in quality, or how could one speak without falling into error? But both characters cannot belong to any one among us in the same relation and be fulfilled in action. For either a man is good or bad, though he may not have reached the height of iniquity or virtue. Then, when the one principle is powerful within us, the other, that is the opposite, will be weak. And so if the formal principle of virtue consists in keeping his commandments, is it not most plain that in not keeping them wickedness originates? Just as to have in himself the Father and the Son, which is the origin and basis of all satisfaction of soul and glory, is in store for him that keeps his commandments, so he that keepeth them not is wholly cut off from participation in the ineffable divine nature which is, in effect, incapacity to enjoy any blessing. If any man, then, think it a good and desirable thing to partake of the divine nature, and to have God, who is the Father of the universe, indwelling and abiding in the shrine of the heart by his Son, in the Spirit, let him thoroughly purge his soul, and wash away the stain of wickedness, by whatever means he can, and, most of all, by all kinds of well-doing. For then will he become truly the temple of God, and he will rest and abide in him, according to the scripture. For then it will not be with him as it was with the lawyer mentioned in the Gospels, who did not wait for grace from the Saviour, but said that he went self-called to follow him, and eager to see so desirable a blessing, exclaimed, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But what said Christ to him as in a parable and in riddles? The foxes have holes, and the birds of the heaven have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. By foxes and birds of the heaven he meant wicked and unclean devils, and the spirits of the world and of the air, which love to dwell and take up their abode in the hearts of pleasure-seekers, fulfilling their own lusts, and so cramping the miserable souls of those who receive them that God can find no place at all for rest in them. This is what he means by laying his head. Let us then cleanse our hearts from every defilement, for so will God dwell in us and will render us proof against all the malice of the devil, and will make us happy and blessed and will render us partakers of his ineffable divine nature. 
End of Introduction, Part 1